Amen. Well, it's great to see everybody here this morning, and uh, I want to invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and uh, we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 13. And so we've taken a break from the Gospel of Mark. We've been in, the ser- in a series in the Gospel of Mark for some time, and we've taken a break. Uh, during the Christmas season, we were looking at John chapter 1, uh, but this morning we'll resume our series, the Gospel of Mark, and excited to do so. Uh, you'll find the passage on 844 in the Bible, in the chair in front of you, underneath the chair in front of you, if you didn't bring your Bible this morning, and I uh, hope that you will follow along with us. So Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin reading In verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the power of your word, that your word has the power to create life and to restore and to comfort and to heal and to sustain. And Lord, we pray that by Your grace in these moments we would know the power of Your Word. And so Lord, come by Your Spirit and do great things for Your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, I'm excited to be back in the Gospel of Mark. And as some of you, if you've been here for the series, you might remember. If not, I'll catch you up, but the Gospel of Mark is divided into two major sections. So the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark present Jesus to us as the great King who holds all power and authority. And then the second part of the Gospel of Mark, chapter, really the latter part of chapter 8 all the way through chapter 16, presents Jesus to us as the suffering servant. And so the last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, we considered that transition passage that takes us from Jesus as the conquering king, that being the focus, to then it transitioning to Jesus being the suffering servant. And in that passage, the latter part of chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shared with His disciples for the first time His intention to go to the cross and to die. 
And it was a very difficult message for Jesus' disciples because Jesus said to them, not only did he tell them that he was going to the cross and he was going to die, but then he followed that by saying, and if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so in Mark chapter 9, now as we come to this passage, the disciples have been jolted by Jesus' radical presentation of the Christ as not only a conquering king, but as a suffering servant. And in addition to that, the message that those who followed this suffering servant will likewise suffer. So we come to this passage and we ask the question, as Jesus issues forth this call to his disciples, as he by implication issues it forth to us, and this must have been the question that the disciples were asking themselves as well, how do we do this? How do we do this? It's taking up your cross and following Jesus can mean many things. It, it might mean trusting God and yielding to God in the midst of a very difficult trial. It might mean being faithful to Christ and to the gospel when others ridicule you and belittle you for your commitment to Christ. It might mean actively choosing to embrace a difficult ministry assignment and the sacrifices that it demands, because that's what Jesus would do. So taking up your cross and following Jesus can mean many different things in our own individual lives, but how do we do it? Perhaps you're a Christian here this morning and maybe you are struggling to continue to carry the cross that you once embraced. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure yet whether you are a Christian or not. Maybe you've thought to yourself that Christ does seem very compelling and in one sense you're drawn to Him, but you are held back by this this angst within your own soul. How do I do this? How do I follow? How do I commit myself to this Christ who calls me to take up a cross and following. Well, what we see in our passage this morning is that shortly after Jesus issues forth this command, this call to take up your cross and to follow him, Jesus then takes those very disciples to a mountain in order to encourage them. And on this mountain, I do believe that God the Father is encouraging Jesus for the mission that lies before Him. But also what is happening on this mountain is that Jesus is encouraging the disciples to embrace the call that He has just given them. And He encourages them by revealing to them the glory that will be His and will be theirs if they embrace the cross that He is offering them. And so it is by beholding the glory of Christ that Jesus' disciples are encouraged to embrace the path of suffering that leads to glory. So let us consider the presentation of Jesus here at the Transfiguration. And in doing so, I want us to see five things that are revealed here about Jesus. Okay, and we'll go through each one of these. Jesus in His glory. Jesus the promised Messiah. Jesus tabernacled among us, Jesus the Son of God, and Jesus the suffering servant. First of all, Jesus in His glory. 
Look there in verses 1 through 3. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, you might be wondering, let me just pause here for a moment. What does Jesus mean by that? In every one of the gospel accounts that record the transfiguration, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this verse, verse 1 here in chapter 9, comes before the transfiguration. So what Jesus is is predicting here in verse 1, that they will see the kingdom of God, Clearly, what Jesus has in mind is the subsequent event of what takes place in the transfiguration, okay? So that's what he's talking about. Verse 2, and after six days, so this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Okay, what we see here in these verses is that Mark, in his record of the transfiguration, is intentionally highlighting many parallels of Jesus' revelation of himself in the transfiguration and God's revelation of himself at Mount Sinai. There are many of these parallels. We'll just look at a few. But, But Mount Sinai was very significant in Old Testament history or in Israel's history. The disciples knew Mount Sinai very well. For those of you who don't know, or just in terms of a refresher, Mount Sinai was the place where God revealed Himself to Moses and the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. And it was on Mount Sinai that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and to His people. And so in the Jewish mind... What happened at Mount Sinai was arguably the most significant revelation of God in the Old Testament. So in Exodus, we read of Moses' encounter with God at Mount Sinai. Just a couple of verses here. Exodus 24, verses 15 and 16. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of of the cloud. Now, do you see some of the parallels? Let me just point out a few. The most obvious parallel is that on both accounts, they go up a mountain, right? It takes place on a mountain. In Exodus, God's revelation of himself takes place on Mount Sinai. In Mark, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus took his disciples up in verse 2 on a high mountain. In Exodus 34, we are told that one of the effects of Moses beholding the glory of God is that his skin, the skin of his face, shone brightly so that when he came down the mountain, he had to place a veil over his face. Mark tells us that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' clothes, verse 3, became radiant, intensely white, as no one could bleach them. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. So on both occasions, the revelation is marked by the presence or marked by an intense, bright, shining light. In Exodus, we also see that God's revelation of himself is marked by the presence of a cloud. So Exodus tells us that when God would visit with Moses on Mount Sinai, a cloud would cover the mountain. And what does Mark tell us here in his gospel? That when Jesus was transfigured, a cloud overshadowed them, and God the Father spoke in the midst of that cloud. 
And these are just a few of the parallels. There's others that we could point out as well. But these many parallels point to uh, Mount Sinai and then the, and, and connect it with the transfiguration. And in so doing, testify to Jesus and his divinity, his divine glory. As Moses climbed Mount Sinai and encountered the glory of God, so now the disciples climb, climb the mountain and gaze upon Jesus and find themselves in the midst of God's divine glory. Now listen, no doubt, given what Jesus has said to the disciples immediately preceding this, this revelation of Jesus' glory is intended to be a source of encouragement and strength for the disciples. As they would later understand, if they are willing to take up their cross and follow Jesus, then one day they will share in the glory that they are now witnessing on the mountain. When the suffering of this world has passed, they will behold the beauty of the glory of the risen Christ. Listen, my friends, I know that there are people here this morning, many of us who are facing different trials or difficulties or sufferings in our lives. And there are many, I think, biblical truths and biblical principles and even biblical skills that we can appeal to or look to to help us cope with difficult times. But understand this, there is nothing that can substitute for a mind and a heart that has been gripped with a glorious vision of God in Christ. If you are going through suffering, if you are going through difficulty, if you are going through hardship, there is nothing, nothing can substitute for a mind and a heart that has been gripped with a glorious vision of God in Christ. It is true that none of us have seen a vision of Jesus standing, literally seen a vision of Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah. No doubt this is a unique event in salvation history. But to a lesser degree, we can praise God that He regularly encourages His people with fresh visions of His power and His glory and His grace and His love. I mean, it happens in, in, in times like this, right? Like worship services when you gather together with God's people and you're singing God's praises. It happens when you hear the word preached and a new truth to God comes and pierces your heart or an old truth is renewed and refreshed in your own mind. It happens in personal time with God in the word and in prayer. It happens in fellowship with other believers in a home group setting when you're talking about the scriptures and how they apply to your own trial or circumstance or difficulty and God is again wakening your heart and opening your eyes to his glory and to his grace and to his love and the cumulative effect of those many experiences serve to encourage and sustain our faith. God in His grace encourages us by fresh visions of the glory of Christ. The second thing I want us to see here about Christ in our text is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus the promised Messiah. Look there in verse 4 and we read these words. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. <coughs> Excuse me. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So here we see that the glory of Christ is magnified by the witnesses who visit him on the mountain, namely Moses and Elijah, right? 
Now, these were two of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament scriptures. Moses, as we've already mentioned, is identified with the law. Moses was the one whom God gave the Ten Commandments, and he led the people of God through the wilderness and um, to the brink of the promised land. And then Elijah was the epitome of the Old Testament prophets. Elijah was a man who was bold and fearless. He proclaimed repentance to God's people, and he called them back to the commands that God had revealed to Moses. And so Moses and then Elijah are representative of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, which would constitute or be representative of the entire Old Testament Scriptures. And you notice here in context, as we think about what's happened previously in chapter 8, we we see the significance of this. In chapter 8, Peter has just made the good confession in Caesarea Philippi. In chapter 8, what happened was Jesus asked the disciples, so all these people are saying different things about Jesus and who He is and all that. And Jesus asked His disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly proclaims, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, right? But just in case there were any doubts, Jesus now stands with two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, to verify that claim. The law and the prophets stand with Jesus to testify that He is, in fact, the Christ. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of the law and the prophets. It was Moses who promised to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to Him you shall listen. And now Moses stands to testify that this is the one. The one with whom he is speaking is the promised prophet, the Christ, the Messiah. You know, speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Isn't that great? All the promises of God, all the promises made through the Old Testament Scriptures, through Moses, through Elijah, through all the other prophets, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Yes, He is the Christ. Yes, He is the Messiah. Yes, He is the great and final prophet. Yes, He is the Savior of God's people. Yes, He is the King of Israel. And Moses and Elijah stand beside Christ now to verify that reality. Listen. I believe that here there is also great encouragement for us as Christians when we are walking through suffering and trial. Some people might think that Christians don't wrestle with doubt or with uncertainty. That's not true. If you're a Christian, you know that yourself. Christians wrestle with doubt and they wrestle with uncertainty. And perhaps we're most susceptible to doubt and uncertainty when the cross of Christ is most heavy. And perhaps we begin to ask questions like, is Jesus really who He said He was? Is this really worth it? And again, my friends, although we have not personally been given a vision of Moses and Elijah, do you know that they still bear witness to Christ today? They do. In the Scriptures. The prophecies and the testimony of the Old Testament Scriptures regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ is nothing less than remarkable and astounding. 
centuries before Jesus was ever conceived, Moses and the prophets gave detailed descriptions of Christ and His person and His work. And their testimony still serves to confirm and encourage our faith today. In fact, the testimony of the Old Testament Scriptures and the fulfilled prophecies in Christ serve as one of the most compelling witnesses and evidences for the veracity of the Christian faith. My friends, take encouragement. If you are wrestling with doubt, if you are wrestling with uncertainty, take encouragement in the, ro- in the words of Moses and Elijah and the Old Testament Scriptures fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The third thing we see in our text this morning is Jesus tabernacled among us. So Jesus in His glory, Jesus the promised Messiah. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus tabernacled among us. Look there in verses 5 and 6 and we read, And Peter said to Jesus, (coughs) Excuse me, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Peter says, and this seems like the understatement of the year, right? Rabbi, it is good that we are here, right? But, but consider what Peter and, and, and the disciples are witnessing. Imagine it in your own mind. Christ beaming forth with the radiance of God's glory. Moses, who has been dead for over 1,400 years, and Elijah, who has not been seen for some 900 years, stood before them conversing with Jesus. The glory of heaven is all around them, and they were in the midst of divine splendor and majesty. And Peter confesses, Rabbi, it is good. It is good that we are here. You know, one of the primary purposes of the transfiguration is to reveal to the disciples that although Jesus is lowly and although He is humble and although they will witness Him experience unimaginable suffering, it will not always be so. That although Jesus has come to suffer and die, He will not always be the suffering servant, but one day He will be revealed and return with the glory of His Father. And in the transfiguration, what the disciples see and what we see is something, a glimpse of the glory of the second coming of Christ. Christ glorified, Christ radiant, Christ triumphant, Christ with Elijah and Moses and all the other saints coming in glory and in power and in splendor. And Peter says, it is good. It is good. And listen, my friends, if you're going through suffering and you're going through trial and you're going through difficulty and you get a vision of that and you get a sense of that in your own heart, it is good. Christ returning in glory and power triumphant is good. That will sustain your faith. Then Peter says, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Most commentators believe that Peter makes this request because, and and we wouldn't naturally make this connection, but with Old Testament context it makes sense. He makes this request because he has the Old Testament tabernacle in mind. If you think about the Old Testament, and we were considering this last week actually in John chapter 1. If you consider the Old Testament, when God came to dwell among His people in a special and a unique way, He did so in a tent or in a tabernacle. 
This was the special dwelling place of God, right? The tabernacle in the Old Testament, which later became the temple. And there were rules and there were regulations and there were rituals to protect the people from the greatness and the glory and the power of God. So there were certain ways that you approached that tent. There were certain ways you approached that tabernacle. There were certain things that you must do. And Peter, it seems what he is saying here is that this is too much glory for us to bear. I know my Old Testament we got to erect a tent. we gotta, we got to erect a tabernacle. Because the glory of God is among us. But do you remember what John said? If you were here for, for this series in John chapter 1, you remember what John said? In John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word, speaking of the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt, or the Word could be translated, tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter's request is not honored. They don't erect tents and tabernacles because Jesus wants Peter to understand that there's no need for tents and tabernacles because Jesus is God tabernacling in the flesh, pitching a tent in human form and dwelling among us. He is seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And notice their response. And, and this is why Peter said it, right? Not because he understood everything that was going on and he knew what needed to happen next, but because he didn't know what was going on. And so it says in the text, for the reason Peter said this is because he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And we might be tempted to respond there and say, oh gosh, that's such an awful thing. I mean, who wants to be terrified? Such an awful thing. The poor disciples, they're up there on the Mount of Transfiguration. All this stuff is happening. Glory all around them. And they are terrified. But instead, I think our response should be that this terror is beautiful and it was needed. You see, there is a fear and a terror in life that is paralyzing and it is destructive. But there is a fear and terror that is invigorating and it is life-giving. And my friends, we all benefit when we are rightly struck with the awe and the wonder and even the fear and even fear at the greatness and glory and beauty of God in Christ. That is and will be revealed when Christ returns. And my friends, you can be assured that as the glory of God dwelling in Christ is made manifest to the disciples and they are struck with fear and awe, you can be assured that this experience fueled and sustained the disciples' faith in days to come. The fourth thing I want us to see about Jesus is Jesus the Son of God. And this is found in verses 7 and 8. Look there in the passage and we read these words. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And so I would say that the revelation of Jesus' glory really reaches its climax here, in, in this account anyways, reaches its climax here with the testimony of the Father. So God the Father provides the ultimate verification of Jesus' pers person and glory. God the Father speaks from heaven and declares this is my beloved Son. 
In other words, this is, when it says beloved son, this is the son whom I love. This is the son of my affection, my beloved son. And here we find in the words of the father, the words that he has always expressed towards the son from eternity past. That Jesus, this is, there's this mutual affection and love between the two. And Jesus, the son, the eternal son, is the son of his delight, his affection, his love. Here we catch a glimpse of the pure and vibrant and zealous Trinitarian love that exists between the persons of the Godhead. God the Father's eternal and unchanging love for the Son. And then he says, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. This command follows Jesus' suggestion, or I'm sorry, Peter's suggestion to erect three tents, right? One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, in order that they might dwell on the mountain together. And it seems, and and commentators have pointed to this, it seems that implicit in Peter's suggestion is the notion that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are equals, that they're peers on equal footing. Whether that's true or not, we don't know for sure, but God the Father dispels any such notion, right? Because, now think about how significant these figures are. Moses represents the law, the Ten Commandments, right? Holy Scripture revealed through Moses. Elijah represents all the prophets that have spoken the Word of God to the people of God. Moses is standing there. Elijah is standing there. God the Father focuses upon His Son and authoritatively pronounces, listen to Him, Right? Listen to my son. Listen to my beloved son. In other words, Jesus' authority surpasses that of Moses and Elijah. And immediately following the Father's pronouncement, Mark tells us that the disciples, verse 8, no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Right? There it is. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. Jesus only stands. He is the ultimate authority. He stands alone. He has no equals. He has no peers. He is the Son of God. Therefore, listen to Him. Now, no doubt in this pronouncement, there is a direct call to the disciples to listen and accept Jesus' message of suffering and then glory. Right? I mean, this is what the disciples are wrestling with. Jesus has just told them he's going to the cross. Peter says, there's no way you can't go to the cross, Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, listen, Peter, if you want to follow me, then you got to take up your cross and follow me. I'm going to the cross. And so as the Father says, listen to him, what the Father is saying is that the disciples must be willing to accept Jesus' words that he will be rejected, that he will suffer, and he will be murdered. They must be willing to listen to Jesus' call to embrace the cross and follow Him. I believe there's a word for each of us as well as we walk through trial, suffering, as we take up our cross and as we follow Jesus. My friends, when it comes to following Jesus and faithfully walking through trials and faithfully walking through suffering, we gotta listen. We gotta listen. We can't always be arguing with God, fighting against Him, resisting His plans and His purposes. 
But when it comes to trials in life, and even when it comes to life as a whole, I think there comes a point where we must surrender and say, okay, I'll stop fighting you, I'll stop arguing, I'll listen, I'll submit, and I'll rest in you. Isn't that what the Father is saying to the disciples? Peter's arguing with Jesus. You can't go to the cross, right? Stop, Peter. Listen. He's the Son. Fifth, Jesus the suffering servant. Look there in verses 9 to 12, and this is our last point. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So they're coming down the mountain. It's obvious that Jesus' disciples don't fully understand what has taken place. Mark tells us that they're questioning among themselves what the rising of the dead means. So Jesus has spoken to them of the resurrection, but they don't fully understand it. And in the midst of this discussion, they decide to ask Jesus a question in verse 21. And, and, and there's, there's a motive behind this question, okay? They ask Jesus the question in verse 11, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And the disciples here are referring to an Old Testament prophecy. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, the prophet Malachi said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Jesus affirms their insight. In verse 12, he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But you see, implicit in the disciples' question is this. Okay, Elijah's supposed to come, that's what the prophets say, and then God will restore all things. So, we were just up on the mountain and we saw Elijah. Now, we're to experience the restoration of all things, and you're talking about suffering and crosses. How can you talk about suffering and crosses if we just saw Elijah and you're the Christ and the restoration of all things is to come? And notice how Jesus responds. And how is it written of the Son of Man that He should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, that's the question they're asking. That's why Jesus goes there. That's the question they're asking. If Elijah's come, then how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And then Jesus says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. And here... In Jesus' response, when he refers to Elijah, he's not just referring to Elijah, literal Elijah on the mountain, right? But John the Baptist, who the Scriptures tell us came in the spirit of Elijah and fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4. And what did they do to John the Baptist? How was his ministry? How was it completed? He was beheaded, right? King Herod, we've already considered it in Mark chapter 6, cut his head off. 
He came in the spirit of Elijah, the great prophet, the forerunner of the Messiah. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, if the world did whatever it pleased with the forerunner of the Messiah, unjustly beheading him, then why should the fate of the Messiah himself be any different? We considered this when we looked at John the Baptist in Mark chapter 6, that in the death of John the Baptist, the new Elijah testified to the coming sufferings of the Christ. As he was rejected and killed by this world, so would be the Son of Man. And this is the message for Jesus' disciples as they descend the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount was glorious. It was splendid. It was majestic. It gave them a vision of, of what was to come so that their faith might be sustained and encouraged and they might persevere and they might take up their cross and follow Jesus. But before Christ's glory is manifested in that way again, He must take the path of suffering. As they descended the mountain, they were reminded that suffering comes before glory. Losing your life comes before saving it. Dying comes before living And the cross comes before the resurrection. And my friends, it makes it all the more easier for us to embrace this message when we realize why He suffered and why He was treated with contempt and why He went to the cross. Jesus tells us just a couple of chapters later in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's why He embraced the cross. That's why He embraced suffering. That's why He embraced contempt, to be a ransom, to offer a payment for the sins of the disciples, to offer a payment for our sins and for anyone who would trust in Christ and take up their cross and follow Him so that we might be forgiven and so that we might dwell and enjoy the glory of God forever. Friends, may God grant us a clearer understanding of who Jesus is and may He open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to see His glory and power and grace with greater clarity so that we might be able to respond to the call to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, we, um, we thank You for the clear call of Jesus to take up our cross and to follow Him. And, Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who perhaps have been carrying that cross for some time and has become heavy and they are weary. And, Lord, I pray that as... Christ in His grace and mercy took the disciples to the mount so that they might see something of His glory to encourage them to, in fact, embrace their cross and to follow Him. Lord, I pray that by Your grace You would do that in our own hearts and in our own lives now. And even this week as we reflect upon this passage. I pray that You would reveal to us and give us a deeper sense in our own minds and hearts and renew in us a vision of the glory and the power and the grace and the love of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that that vision would be life-giving, it would be faith-sustaining, 
And I pray that we would be faithful to carry our cross. Father, I pray for those who have struggled and wrestled with whether they should even pick up the cross for the first time. Maybe they've been considering what it means to be a disciple of Christ and to follow Him, but have yet to truly trust Him and follow Him. But I pray that the vision of Christ and His glory would be so compelling. That Lord, in each of our hearts, it would be settled undeniably that to follow Christ and to experience any suffering in this world is far, is so much worth the glory that will be revealed in Him. And that we would go hard after Christ. That nothing, nothing would keep us from pursuing Him with all our hearts. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for His glory. We thank You for the salvation that we have in Him. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.